everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. Myths and stories are essential tools and guides for creative living in this crazy world, and I want to share some of what I've learned from them with you. I want to start the program this week with an excerpt from an interview that John Lilly did with Sam Keen that was printed in Psychology Today in 1971. John Lilly was a neurophysiologist, easy for me to say, and biophysicist who was interested in the nature of reality and the relationship between brain and mind. That led him to explorations of altered consciousness and questions about truth and belief. Lilly experimented with immersion tanks and sensory deprivation, LSD, interspecies communications with dolphins. If you're old enough to remember the movie Day of the Dolphin, that was influenced by Lilly's experiments. And in this interview, he told Keene, that he had a working rule. And that working rule was whatever one believes to be true either is true or becomes true in one's own mind within limits to be determined experimentally and experientially. These limits themselves are in turn beliefs to be transcended. The limits of one's belief set the boundaries for possible experience. So every time you reach a limiting belief, it must be examined and gone beyond. For the explorer, there are no final, true beliefs. And later on in the interview, Lily goes on to say that freedom is the unknown. I'm sharing this with you because this perspective from of Lily's, and in particular, the part about the limits of one's beliefs setting the boundaries for possible experience are really at the heart of my worldview and my approach as a mythologist. The way that I say that to you every week is in my little tagline in the, at the end when I say, keep the mystery in your life alive. I think that it's imperative that we all work as hard as we can as creatively as we can, to avoid absolutism. Now, this is a big challenge. (laughs) Um, I imagine that many of you, like me, have approached this particular problem in a variety of ways. There are lots of different modalities and ways to go about seeking new limits and new experiences. Lots of, of training that you can go through, therapy that you can do, all kinds of things to get to understand yourself better, to revamp your storyline, which are, you know, to tune up your personal narrative, to enhance your creativity, to develop spiritual insight and wisdom, to explore the body. I mean, it's, it's endless, really. Now, I imagine that in my line of work, I may receive more announcements and emails and advertisements for different programs and approaches to 
developing myself in various ways. But I've noticed that an awful lot of these new uh, approaches revolve around the concept of heroism, of being a hero, being the hero in my own life. And that's what I want to comment on today. The hero, the person who selflessly faces a dangerous situation in order to do something valuable for the community, that's, that's an important role. But I think that we've developed a whole mythology, if you will, around the hero that is now a limiting factor for many of us. I don't think that we all are heroes, or even all should be heroes, or all want to be heroes. But rather than than pontificate about that, uh, let me share a story with you. I'm deviating a little bit from my usual practice because this story that I want to read is not a myth, but I think it's a very useful and entertaining commentary on this mythology of heroism. It's called The King Who Saved Himself from Being Saved, and it was written by John Ciardi. Once long ago, in a faraway, beginning by the sea, in, of course, a kingdom, one fine day with, why not, a lark in a tree, yes, all the poems I ever see put all their larks in the air, Such poor, tired larks. Let one rest in my tree, I thought. So I put it there. So there was a lark. In, as I say, the tree I put there to be, part of that long-ago faraway kingdom, of course, by the sea. A princess, naturally, in, yes, a tower, was listening to, what else? The lark. And a ho-hum giant was smelling a flower in the shade by the brook in the park. The king was thinking of counting his gold, but went to sleep instead. The queen was hungry, but had a cold, and hadn't gotten out of bed. It was never as peaceful as this before in any fable I've read. But in came a hero. At least he wore a helmet all over his head, and he looked like a hero, a very hard look, and he made a heroic noise, and he clattered at every step he took, which impressed the stable boys. All over his head was his helmet, and in his head, of course, a fight, and he came decked out in a suit of tin to prove that he was right. He scared the lark. He woke the king. The princess began to cry. The queen got up and began to ring for milk and an aspirin pie. Where is your giant? the hero cried. I have come to slay him in two. The giant jumped up and ran off to hide in a closet. Wouldn't you? Where is your giant? the hero roared. I have come to do some slang and save the kingdom. The king looked bored. He's around here somewhere playing. And now, if you please be still, said the king, 
We run a peaceful kingdom. If you must be heard, and if you can sing some new songs, why, then sing some. But stop that noise, young man, or I shall toss you in that ocean I always build my kingdoms by. I don't like such commotion. But still the hero stood his stand. Where is your giant? roared he. I have come to slay him and win the hand of your daughter by setting you free. The queen came in with a cold in her head and a cold in her nose and her eyes, all sort of yellow and bleary red, perhaps from the aspirin pies. The queen came in and she swayed a bit, perhaps from the milk. Tut, tut, she said to the hero. You're having a fit. You'll set us free of what? I have come, said the hero, to set you free of the giant there always is in every kingdom by the sea in such long ago days as this. And to win the hand of your daughter, dear, and half the kingdom to boot. What? roared the king. Get out of here, or I'll tell my guards to shoot. I have come, said the hero, a very long way over rivers, fields, and fences. I have been on the road for six years and a day. Just think of my expenses. I've used twenty pounds of solder alone, plus nuts and bolts and wire, to mend my suit, and costs have grown incalculably higher for sharpening swords and for oats and hay, and heroes have to sip a little something along the way to guard against the gripe. I'm not at all sure I can pay what I owe out of half a kingdom so small. But giants get scarcer and scarcer, so it's this or nothing at all. And enough palaver. I'm here to do some slang, and here I stay till I have slain your giant in two. So bring him on, I say. Well then, said the king, just wait a bit. And he called his cannoneer, who brought him a cannon and pointed it in a way that made it clear. The palaver was over. That's unfair, cried the hero. So it is, said the king with a sigh. <sighs> you have me there. But in long ago kingdoms like this, we have to be careful. It takes time to become a long ago and though being a hero is hardly a crime, we do better without them, you know. A peaceful kingdom's the kingdom for me, said the king. And as for you, go save someone else. For, do you see, I dislike being saved in two. Heroes are handsome and noisy and bold, but they will come out on top. And once they start saving you, I've been told, they don't know when to stop. I run a peaceful kingdom here, and I'd like it to age a bit. To which may I add that my cannoneer informs me his fuse is lit. You have ten seconds, I mean nine. Unfair, the hero cried. Eight, said the king. You do look fine, but seven, a fast ride, could six, prevent some changes you might, five, not wish for, four, or is it three? Well, now it's two, one, and what is that roar? A cannon. Why on earth? 
Oh, yes, now I remember. Well, I tried to tell him, but I guess heroes are hard to tell. Someone go let the giant out and ask the lark to sing. And I say, isn't it about dinner time, said the king. And that's how it went, one long ago and far away by the sea, just as a little bird I know, a lark, told it to me. The kingdom was saved from being saved. The giant was saved from a fight. The king was afraid he had behaved in ways not entirely right. But there was the fuse, and it was lit, he said, and time ran on, and before I had finished explaining it to the hero, he was gone. In, I'm afraid, a sudden puff that puffed him out of sight. As heroes go, he was brave enough, but I'm not sure he was bright. I'm sure I made it perfectly clear what sort of kingdom I run. Why, I even scolded my cannoneer for firing that horrible gun. And I'm sure, had I stood where the hero stood, all mounted and ready to go, I'm sure I could have understood in, say, two seconds or so, that only eight were left to me. And I'm sure that, given the eight, I could have made it easily out of the palace gate. Well, maybe not. But if it's true that maybe I misbehaved, at least I wasn't saved in two. In fact, I wasn't saved. Except from being saved, he said, which is all the saving I'm for. And that's that, friends, and so to bed, for that is all there's time for. The end. So there we have a humorous commentary on this important, central, dominant, really, narrative in Western culture of the hero. What Ciardi shows us is heroism as a career as something that is motivated by the desire to be a hero rather than by circumstance. This question of motivation, whether or not it comes from a desire to be something, be somebody, rather than a response to the circumstances that you find yourself in, is something that I want to return to in a minute. But first of all, Does the hero in this story remind you at all of the princes in Briar Rose? You might recall that in the Grimm's Brothers version of Sleeping Beauty, Briar Rose, when the princess goes to sleep, a big hedge grows up around her palace. And over the course of the hundred years that she is destined to sleep, numerous princes come and All of them insist on attempting to hack their way through this hedge, and all of them die. The one who does make it through the hedge is the one who happens to show up the day that the hundred years are over. So while it's true that you can read many of the stories that we've inherited as hero stories, as the hero's journey, as Campbell said, there are many others that present us with a different 
take on life and how it unfolds. I don't think these these viewpoints are competing. I think they add complexity. Bravery and strength and action are important, but they take place in a context. The story of Briar Rose reminds us that there are other forces at work. Fate and destiny, that is, the fairies. And that there's a cycle, there's a process that governs and unfolds according to its own time beyond our conscious control. As I said in the programs about uh, the 13th fairy and Briar Rose, we find this lack of control frightening. Uncertainty can be scary. And this seems to have led people for millennia, really, to simplify and codify otherwise complex and therefore useful concepts and narratives about ways of being in the world. We want to boil it down to black and white. And this same fear of uncertainty is what drives some of us into the arms of demagogues. So while it might seem like a amusing conceit on my part to talk about not being the hero of your own life, the cultural and personal implications of a blind attachment to the notion of the hero, of the person who is determined and willful and brave uh, as being the savior and the, the only way of being not only successful in life, but the only way of being, period, uh, is a very dangerous one that I think we all need to be examining right now. Maybe the deconstruction of this idea is underway. I certainly hope so. But if you're thinking that the anti-hero is a possible solution, I'd have to disagree. We have seen the rise of anti-heroes in popular stories and literature and movies, especially over the last 30 or 40 years. And the anti-hero is an improvement, perhaps, because this is a person with flaws. You might say that the imperfection of the anti-hero as a person who is perhaps not up to the task that they're called to do or doesn't want to do it is a return to earlier, more sophisticated views of the hero, the tragic hero that we find in Greek mythology, for example. But as the name implies, it's still a label and a model that is being defined by the heroic. And as our king in our stories told us, heroes are handsome and noisy and bold, but they will come out on top. And once they start saving you, I've been told, they don't know when to stop. In recent programs, I've been telling some stories about the trickster coyote. And I think the trickster coyote is relevant in this discussion too. We know that he is a paradox. He brings together things that we like to think don't belong together. Heroism and foolishness, for example. And while Coyote has the ability to come back to life after he kills himself off or falls prey to his own traps, we don't. There are alternatives, though. 
as stories like Briar Rose show us. Although it's not the kind of heroic action that we're used to, in that story, the princess played the role of the hero, of the real hero, because her role was to bring renewal to the kingdom. She was the new life. She was the refreshment of the old order and the old rules represented by her parents. And how did she accomplish this? It was her fate, her destiny, and she went to sleep, which as we discussed in that program, is actually a very active process of transformation. There are other stories where the hero, or let's say protagonist, let's, av- let's avoid the word hero altogether, is feminine, where the solution to the impossible task is to surrender, to cry, and thereby invite other forces in to help, to participate Now, when I tell these stories, I find that people get very uncomfortable with these other modes of action, with these other metaphors of transformation. We are so inculcated with this idea that we've got to be doing things that we really don't understand how much is accomplished by not doing. Doing by not doing is an idea that's found in the Tao. And I'm actually investigating that right now as it appears in Trickster Coyote Stories. When I've got all of that together, I'll be sharing that with you on this program. So let's circle back here to John Lilly and the transcending of limiting beliefs. I wonder what would happen if when we talked about being responsible and taking personal responsibility, I wonder what would happen if we shifted that notion of personal responsibility that shows up so frequently in our rhetoric about being the hero in your own life, being a hero, period. I wonder what would happen if we shifted that idea from being responsible as taking charge to being responsible for this transcending of boundaries for this continual self-exploration and self-testing. I wonder, too, if we could reinvigorate our notion of responsibility with the idea of responsiveness. The hero in the story that I read you today was oblivious to the circumstances that he was in. He makes his way into a completely peaceful kingdom and he can only see his own agenda. And his blindness and deafness, for that matter, is so great that when the king points a lighted cannon at him, he still doesn't get the clue that he should be leaving pronto. Responding, what if what if we stopped trying to force things and learned to respond. Respond to the needs of others around us. Respond to 
the call of the world that we're in. Respond to our own inner dynamics. This is something I'm trying to practice as I try and break my way out of my own heroic mythologies. And a friend shared something with me from John O'Donohue that's taken from his book, Anamkara, that I'd like to share with you. It's called Coming Home to Yourself. It is far more creative to work with the idea of mindfulness than with the idea of will. Too often people try to change their lives by using the will as a kind of hammer to beat their life into proper shape. The intellect identifies the goal of the program and the will accordingly forces the life into that shape. This way of approaching the sacredness of one's own presence is externalist and violent. It brings you falsely outside yourself and you can spend years lost in the wildernesses of your own mechanical, spiritual programs. You can perish in a famine of your own making. If you work with a different rhythm, you will come easily and naturally home to yourself. Your soul knows the geography of your destiny. Your soul alone has the map of your future. Therefore, you can trust this indirect, oblique side of yourself. If you do, it will take you where you need to go. But more importantly, it will teach you a kindness of rhythm in your journey. A kindness of rhythm in your own journey. We are not all here to be heroes doing it in the heroic way. There are many ways to be in this world and many ways to make our contributions. O'Donohue uses the word mindfulness, mindfulness rather than the idea of will. I see that as the practice that leads to responsiveness. So, if the image of the hero feels alien to you, if the rhetoric of heroic action rings false in your ears, take heart. You can be the lover in your life instead, or maybe the interpreter, the weaver, the dancer, the poet. You can be the bear or the hummingbird, the candle on the altar casting flickering light, the star catcher, the cloud surfer. Be the howling wolf instead. Be the explorer. Be the lotus with her roots in the mud. Be the rock or the wheel that turns. You can be the one who waits, the one who listens, the one who dances, the one who plants seeds in the spring. The Dalai Lama said, this planet doesn't need more successful people. The planet desperately needs more peacemakers, healers, restorers, storytellers, and lovers of all kinds. We do not all have to be heroes to be in charge of our lives or to make contributions that matter. So that's it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave. Feel free to contact me if you have comments or questions about this program. And if you'd like to hear any of the other stories that I referred to, Briar Rose and the Trickster Coyote stories, be sure to go to my 
site on Bandcamp, B-A-N-D-C-A-M-P, to find all of these archived programs. When you go to Bandcamp, you're also going to find that there's a special deal running right now. You can purchase all of the programs for Myth and the Mojave, that's three years of programs, at a 35% discount, which I don't remember the exact number, but it's less than $50. So that is going to be available through the end of this month as part of my celebrating doing this program for three years. And I encourage you to uh, take advantage of that. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making. And you know, keep the mystery in your life alive. <laughs>